Chapter 8 Diseases of Science The use of a mathematical and logical method is so deeply embedded within the structure of science that one cannot doubt its power to bring order into the world of observation. Perhaps the best classical statement of this is given by Plato in his Laws, where he remarks that arithmetic stirs up him who is by nature sleepy and dull, and makes him quick to learn, retentive and shrewd, and aided by art divine, he makes progress quite beyond his natural powers. This is amply demonstrated by the rich return whenever the scientific methods of measurement and mathematical treatment have been used, be they within the sciences as in biology, or in human affairs as in economics and other segments of what was once called political arithmetic. It does not, of course, follow the quantification followed by mathematical treatment is in itself a desirable and useful thing. The pitfalls are many. For example, it is almost certainly an arbitrary, if entertaining, procedure to grade the various geniuses that the world has seen and give them so many marks out of a hundred for each of the qualities they have demonstrated or failed to demonstrate. Now, the history of science differs remarkably from all other branches of history, being singled out by virtue of its much more orderly array of material and also by the objective criteria which exist for the facts of science, but not necessarily for the facts of other history. Thus, we can be reasonably sure what sort of things must have been observed by Boyle or Galileo or Harvey, in a way that we can never be sure of the details of Shakespeare's life and work. Also, we can speak certainly about the interrelations of physics, chemistry, and biology, but not so positively about the interdependence of the histories of Britain, France, and America. Above all, there is in the field of science a cumulative accretion of contributions that resembles a pile of bricks. Each researcher adds his bricks to the pile in an orderly sequence that is, in theory at least, to remain in perpetuity as an intellectual edifice built by skill and artifice, resting on primitive foundations and stretching to the upper limits of the growing research front of knowledge. Now, seemingly, by means of the art divine of arithmetic, an array so orderly is capable of some sort of exact analysis which might progress beyond the natural powers afforded us by the usual historical discussions. It is perhaps especially perverse of the historian of science to remain purely an historian and fail to bring the powers of science to bear upon the problems of its own structure. There should be much scope for a scientific attack on science's own internal problems. But curiously, any such attack is regarded with much skepticism, and the men of science prefer, for the most part, to talk as unskilled laymen about the general organizational problems with which science is currently beset. Fortunately, it happens that the most revealing issues in the history of the last few centuries of science have much in common with the basic problems currently afflicting the structure and organization of science. Both considerations concern what one might well call the size of science, the magnitude of the effort in terms of numbers of men working, papers written, discoveries made, financial outlay involved. For the history of science, the treatment of such magnitudes by a process of refined head counting and suitable mathematical manipulation may provide one much needed way of viewing the forest of modern science without the distraction of the individual trees of various separate technicalities, provided only that we take the precaution to link the results at every possible stage with such information as we have already gleaned from purely historical considerations of the evidence, we might do much to amplify that evidence. It is in a very similar way that economic history can augment social history provide a new and more nearly complete understanding of processes that previously were only partly 
intelligible on qualitative lines. Before entering this region, I must post a caveat with respect to the claim that such an analysis might have direct bearing on our understanding of present problems and future states of science. Whatever our reasons for accepting the study of history as a legitimate and valuable activity of scholars and teachers, one of the claims not customarily made is that of direct utility. We do not advise that a good grounding in history can make one an efficient politician. We do not maintain that the historian is the possessor of any magical crystal ball through which he can look into the future. If I suggest that the history of science is perhaps more useful than most other histories, it is only because of the peculiar regularity and verifiability of its subject matter. Since such oddities exist, however, it is useful to stretch the method to the full and examine critically any benefits which might thereby accrue. For a preliminary exercise in the internal political arithmetic of science, let us first examine the history of the vital process that made science assume a strongly cumulative character. The origin of this was in the 17th century invention of the scientific journal and the device of the learned paper, one of the most distinct and fundamental innovations of the scientific revolution. The earliest surviving journal is the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society of London, first published in 1665. It was followed rapidly by some three or four similar journals published by other national academies in Europe. Thereafter, as the need increased, so did the number of journals, reaching a total of about 100 by the beginning of the 19th century, 1,000 by the middle, and some 10,000 by 1900. According to the world list of scientific periodicals, a tome larger than any family Bible are now well on the way to the next milestone of 100,000 such journals. Now this provides a set of heads that are reasonably easy to count. For the earlier period, there exists several lists giving the dates of foundation of the most important scientific serial publications. For more recent years, we have the world list and similar estimates. Of course, there is some essential difficulty in counting physical review. as a single unit of the same weight as any annual broadsheet of the Society of Leather Tanners of Bucharest. But for a first order of magnitude, there seems no overriding difficulty in selecting which heads to number. If we make such a count extending in time range from 1665 to the present day, it is immediately obvious that the enormous increase in the population of the scientific periodicals has proceeded from unity to the order of 100,000 with an extraordinary regularity seldom seen in any man-made or natural statistic. It is apparent to a high order of accuracy that the number has increased by a factor of 10 during every half century, starting from a state in 1750 when there were about 10 scientific journals in the world. From 1665 to 1750, the birth span of the first ten journals, the regularity is not quite so good. But this indeed is exactly what one might expect for a population that was then not large enough to treat statistically. No sort of head counting can settle down to mathematical regularity till the first dozen or so cases have been recorded. The detail at the beginning of the curve of growth is rather revealing in terms of its historical implications. Starting in 1665, the curve proceeds for a couple of decades as if there had been healthy growth. By that time, the growth acts as if it started from a first journal at a date nearer to 1700 than 1665. Thus, the curve indicates that, in some sense, the scientific journal was born a little too soon. The first publications were demonstrably precursors rather than true originators of the process. This is particularly interesting when one considers the difficult periods which the Royal Society and other academies experienced once the initial flush of enthusiasm had passed. They went through grave crises and had to suffer rebirth early in the 18th century. 
in the course of this proliferation of the scientific journals, became evident by about 1830 that the process had reached a point of absurdity. No scientist could read all the journals or keep sufficiently conversant with all published work that might be relevant to his interest. This had, in fact, been an attendant worry from the very beginning of the operation, and the first duty of the earliest journals was to review all published books and all papers which had appeared in the organs of the other national academies. But by about 1830, there was clearly trouble in the learned world, and with an assemblage of some 300 journals being published, some radically new effort was needed. Yet again, there was an invention as deliberate and as controversial as the journal itself. The new device of the abstract journal appeared on the scene. Now, a single abstract journal could never suffice, and in accordance with the convenient compartmentalization of science current by this time, further abstract journals were created to fill the needs of the various specialist groups. Because it presented a solution to this crisis, the abstract journal removed the pressure, and the number of plain journals was enabled to grow unhampered. This growth has continued to the present day. On account of this proliferation, however, the number of abstract journals has also increased, following precisely the same law, multiplying by a factor of 10 in every half century. Thus, by about 1950, we reached the point at which the size of the population of abstract journals had attained a critical magnitude of about 300. This is, of course, the reason why during the last decade scientists have been concerned about the need for abstracts of abstracts, calling this the information problem, which seems to require some process of electronic sorting of abstracts as a means of coping with the rising flood of literature. It is interesting to reflect that, on the basis of this historical evidence, one can show that any new process would bear the same relation to abstracts as the abstracts have to original papers. This relation involves a compression by a factor of about 300, the number of journals that seem to have necessitated the coming into being of each abstract journal. Now it seems that the advantage at present providable by electronic sorting may be of a considerably smaller order of magnitude, perhaps a factor of the order of 10. If this is so, it follows that the new method must be no more than a palliative and not the radical solution that the situation demands. It can only delay the fateful crisis by a few paltry decades. The seriousness of the crisis is evident from the change in form and function of physics papers in recent years. Collaborative work now exceeds the singular author paper, and the device of pre-publication, duplicated sheets circulated to the new invisible colleges has begun to trespass upon the traditional functions of the printed paper in a published journal. If we do not find the way of abstracting the abstracts, it may well happen that the printed research paper will be doomed, though it will be difficult to rid ourselves of the obsession that it seems vital to science. The most remarkable conclusion obtained from the data just considered is that the number of journals has grown exponentially rather than linearly. Instead of there being just so many new periodicals per year, the number has doubled every so many years. The constant involved is actually about 15 years for a doubling, corresponding to a power of 10 in 50 years and a fact of 1,000 in a century and a half. In the 300 years which separate us from the mid-17th century, this represents a fact of 1 million. One can be reasonably surprised that any accurate law holds over such a large fact of increase. Indeed, it is within the common experience that the law of exponential growth is too spectacular to be obeyed for very long. Large factors usually introduce some more than quantitative change that alters the process. Thus, if only the Indians had been wise enough to bank at a compound interest the small sum for which they sold the island Manhattan, it would now, at all reasonable rates of interest, have grown to be of the same order of magnitude as the present real estate value of that area.
Now, not only is it therefore quite exceptional that anything could have grown so regularly from unit size to the order of hundreds of thousands, but it is altogether remarkable that this particular curve should be a normal compound interest, exponential law of growth rather than any of the other alternatives that exist, some of them more simple, some more complex. The, expo the exponential law is the mathematical consequence of having a quantity that increases so that the bigger it is, the faster it grows. The number of journals has behaved just like a colony of rabbits, breeding among themselves, reproducing every so often. Why should it be that the journals appear to breed more journals at a rate proportional to their population at any one time instead of any particular constant rate? It must follow that there is something about scientific discoveries or the papers by which they are published that makes them act in this way. It seems as if each advance generates a series of new advances at a reasonably constant birth rate, so that the number of births is strictly proportional to the size of the population of discoveries at any given time. Looking at the statistics in this light, one might say that the number of journals has been growing so that every year about one journal in 20, about 5% of the population, had a journal child, a quotient of fecundity that is surely low enough to be reasonable, but which must inevitably multiply the population by 10 in each succeeding half century. The law of exponential increase found for the number of scientific journals is also obeyed for the actual number of scientific papers in those journals. In fact, it seems an even more secure basis to count the heads of whichever papers are listed by one of the great abstract journals or bibliographies that take a librarian's list of the journals themselves. The list of papers is likely to be a little more comprehensive and more selective than any list of journals which may from time to time publish scientific papers immersed in non-scientific material. As a good specimen of the results of such a statistical investigation of numbers of scientific papers, there is next presented a curve showing the numbers of papers recorded by physics abstracts since it came into being in 1900. In the earliest decade, this journal's main function was to record electrical engineering papers, and not before World War I did it find it useful to list the physics section separately. We therefore ignored the mixed data before 1918. It is, however, quite remarkable that from 1918 to the present day, the total number of physics papers recorded in the abstracts, clearly a rather complete and significant selection, has followed an exponential growth curve to an order of accuracy which does not fluctuate by more than about 1% of the total. There are now about 180,000 physics papers recorded in these volumes, and the number has steadily doubled at a rate even faster than once every 15 years. In this curve, one particular side effect is worth noting. The data show that during World War II in the period of 1938 to 48, the production of physics papers was reduced to reach a minimum of very nearly one-third of what is normally would have been. In the whole decade including the war, some 60,000 instead of 120,000 papers came out. Two diametrically opposed conjectures have been made with respect to the effect of the war upon science. The one school would argue that the enormous stimulation of giant projects like that of the atomic bomb helped science in a way that no peacetime activities could have afforded. The other school says that the mobilization of men and money for purpose of war effort rather than scientific advance was a diversion, an actual retardation instead of an acceleration of science. The graph shows immediately that neither of these things happened, or rather, if they did, they balanced each other so effectively that no resultant effect is to be found. Once science had recovered from the war, the curve settled down to exactly the same slope and rate of progress that it had before. It had neither a greater nor a less initial slope. It is exactly as if the war loss had not occurred. The 
The present curve runs accurately parallel to its projected pre-war course. Returning to the main investigation, we can note that once again the accuracy of exponential growth is most surprising, especially because of the large factor involved and also because its regularity is so much greater than one normally finds in the world of statistics. I might add that exactly the same sort of result occurs if one takes the headcount with scientific books for abstracts of chemical, biological, or mathematical papers. It may also be found in the bibliographies which exist for particular specialities within any of these domains. One may, in fact, the suitably documented topic performs such a mathematical analysis and thereby demonstrate very clearly the successive phases. First, precursors, then a steady state of exponential growth. Next, a decline to linear growth when no new manpower is entering the field. And finally, the collapse of the field when only a few occasional papers are produced or an alternative revival should it suddenly take on a new lease of life through a redefinition of its content and mode of operation. So far, we only have the very crudest measure of the size of the science. There has been no discussion of the relation between the numbers of papers and the number and quality of the scientists working and the research they produce. It is relatively easy to establish a relationship between scientists and their papers. For example, one can readily take an index volume for several years of publication in a particular journal or over a whole field and count the number of men who published but one paper those are two, three, and so on. This has been done many times, and for my present purpose, it will suffice to cite Latka's Law of Productivity, which states that the number of authors publishing just n papers is proportional to 1 over n squared. Thus, if you have a certain chance of producing one paper during your lifetime, you have one quarter that chance of producing two, one ninth for three, one hundredth for ten, and so on. Again, this is reasonably expected mathematical law, but it is surprising to see that it seems to be followed to much greater accuracy than one might predict. Once more, it is surprising to find that this seems to be a universal law. Thus, it is obeyed equally well by data taken from the first few volumes of the 17th century philosophical transactions and by those from a recent volume of chemical abstracts. The distribution of productivity among scientists has not changed much of the whole 300 years for which papers have been produced. As a result of the constancy of this law, it is possible to say that over the years there have been about three papers for every author. If, if we care to define a scientist as a man who writes at least one scientific paper in his lifetime, then the number of scientists is always approximately one-third of the number of published papers. Actually, the mathematics of this computation is not quite trivial. It is necessary to make a somewhat arbitrary assumption about the maximum number of papers that could be written by any man in any one lifetime. Happily, the agreement with statistical data is so good that assumptions do not appear to be very critical. Having established this, we may transfer all our remarks about the growth of scientific literature into equivalent remarks about the manpower involved. Hence, during the last 300 years, the size of the labor force of science has grown from the first few to the order of hundreds of thousands. Now, this is something so familiar, it seems, from the discussion of the explosion of the world population and from the well-known troubles of libraries, which seem to be doubling in size every few decades, that it may look as if we are merely making new soup with old bones. To state it a little more dramatically, however, we may remark that at any time there coexist the scientific population scientists produced over, let us say, the last 40 years. Thus, at any one time, about three doubling periods where the scientists are alive. Hence, some 80 to 90% of all scientists have never been or are alive now. We might miss Newton and Aristotle, but happily, most of the contributors are still with us. It must be recognized that the growth of science is something very much more active, much vaster in its problems, than any other sort of growth happening in the world today. For one thing, 
that has been going on for a longer time more steadily than most other things. More important, it is growing much more rapidly than anything else. All other things in population, economics, non-scientific culture, are growing so as to double in roughly every human generation of, say, 30 to 50 years. Science in America is growing so as to double in only 10 years. It multiplies by 8 in each successive doubling of all non-scientific things in our civilization. If you care to regard it this way, the density of science in our cultures is quadrupling during each generation. Alternatively, one can say that science has been growing so rapidly that all else, by comparison, has been almost stationary. The exponential growth has been effective largely in increasing the involvement of our culture with science, rather than in contributing to any general increase in the size of both culture and science. The past three centuries have brought science from a one in a million activity to a point at which the expenditure of several percent of all our national productivity and available manpower is entailed by the general fields of science and its closely associated applications. An excellent example of such concentration is the electrical engineering industry, the technology of which is much more implicitly scientific than any other. Published manpower figures show that the usual exponential increase, acting as if it started with a single man circa 1750, the time of Franklin's experiments on lightning, and doubling until there were 200,000 people employed in 1925 and even million by 1955. At this rate, the whole working population should be employed in this one field as early as 1990. Returning for a moment to the history of the process rather than the statistics, it seems reasonable to identify by the name of this growth of science and its associated technologies from the small beginning to its present status as the largest block of national employment. It is the process we call the Industrial Revolution. If one thinks in terms of technology or the Enlightenment, if one stresses the cognitive element, the movement started in Europe in the mid-17th century and reached large proportions measurably by thousands rather than units in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Thus, our various graphs of cumulative growth may be regarded as charting quantitatively the course of the Industrial Revolution and Enlightenment and providing a key to the various dates and phenomena associated with their progress. It is instructive in this study to compare the growth charts of Europe with those of, for the United States. All the available statistics show that the United States has undergone the same sort of accurately exponential proliferation as Europe. The difference is, however, that once the United States started, it made its progress by doubling in scientific size every 10 years rather than every 15. This was remarked upon already in 1904 in a brilliant essay in The Education of Henry Adams, Chapter 34. The explanation of the rate difference is difficult, but the fact seems quite clear. Once the United States had, so to speak, decided to get down to a serious attempt at scientific education, research, and utilization, it was able to carry through this process at a rate of interest considerably higher than that of Europe. A great part of the explanation is probably due not to any special or peculiar properties of the American way of life as compared with the European, but merely to the fact that this country was expanding into a scientific vacuum. Furthermore, it was doing it with the help of that high state of science already reached and held as a common stock of knowledge of mankind at the date when the United States started its process. Europe had to start from the beginning, and by the 18th and 19th century, it had a considerable accretion of tradition and established institutions of science and technology. Whatever the reason, the United States continued to expand at this rate faster than Europe, and eventually it acquired an intensity of science and society that became greater than that of Europe. One can consider the scientific advancement of Russia in exactly the same way. The Tsarist Russia's science was not altogether inconsiderable. It partook the general level of Europe, 
But after 1918, a determined effort was made to expand science. Again, the statistics showed that the advance has been very accurately exponential and that the doubling time is of the order of some seven years rather than 10 years in the United States and the 15 of Europe. Again, one can attribute this in large part not to any particular excellence of the Russians or to a degree of crash programming, but rather to the fact that if they wanted to do the job at all, there was only one way of doing it, and this involved being able to start from a world state of scientific knowledge that was considerably higher for them than for the start of the United States. Lastly, we may take the case of China. Here we have an even more recent start, and consistent with theory, we see that the statistics in the country indicate a doubling every five years. As an indication of this, it has already just become necessary and advisable to prepare running English translations of the chief Chinese scientific journals, as we have now been doing for the Russian literature over some few years. Again, rather than attribute any particular high quality to the Chinese, I would suggest that they are simply expanding into a larger scientific vacuum, starting at a higher level than any of the earlier protagonists. The whole thing is like a gigantic handicap race in which the country that starts last must necessarily have the highest initial speed, and it seems fairly conclusive that this speed can readily be maintained. It certainly has been by America, so that the state of science must eventually reach the concentration that we see in the most highly developed countries. It is reasonable to suppose, from the very universality of science and from its supranational qualities, that it is much more likely for the world to reach a state of uniform development and exploitation in this direction than in any other. The handicap race of the Industrial Revolutions has indeed been so well designed that it seems likely that all runners will come abreast, reaching a size of science proportional to their total populations at much the same time, a time not too many decades distant into the future. Because of the obvious importance of the scientific race between the United States and Russia, and that which may well occur between these countries and China, the study of the natural history of the Industrial Revolutions clearly needs more attention. The modern scientific development of Japan would provide an excellent case history. The very slow beginnings in modern India might throw light on what it is that constitutes a true onset of this sort of exponential industrial revolution. Having now discussed the historical origins and statistical progress of the device, the scientific paper, and the profession of the scientist, we must next consider the decline and fall of these things. It is indeed apparent that the process to which we have become accustomed during the past few centuries is not a permanent feature of our world. A process of growth so much more vigorous than any population explosion or economic inflation cannot continue indefinitely, but must lead to an intrinsically larger catastrophe than either of these patently apparent dangers. To go beyond the bounds of absurdity, another couple of centuries of normal growth of science would give us dozens of scientists per man, women, child, and dog of the world population. Long before that state was reached, we should meet the ultimate educational crisis when nothing might be done to increase the number of available trained professionals in science and technology. Again, to make reasonably safe exaggeration, if every school and college in the United States were turned to the exclusive production of physicists, ignoring all else in science and in the humanities, there would still necessarily be a manpower shortage in physics before the passage of another century. The normal expansion of science that we have grown up with is such that it demands each a year a larger place in our lives, a larger share of our resources. Eventually, that demand must reach a state where it cannot be satisfied, a state where the civilization is saturated with science. This may be regarded as an ultimate end of the completed industrial revolution. Thus, that process takes us from the first few halting paces to the maximum of effort. The only question that must be answered lies in the definition of that saturated state. 
and the estimation of its arrival date. Fortunately, the mathematical theory is again most helpful if we demand only an approximate picture and require no maze or detail. Exponential growths that become saturated and thereby slowed down to a steady level are very common in nature. We meet them in almost every field of biological growth or epidemiology. The rabbit population in Australia, with a colony of fruit flies in a bottle, all grow rapidly until some natural upper limit is reached. In nearly all known cases, the approach to the ceiling is rather strikingly symmetrical with the growth from the datum line. The curve of growth is a sigmoid, or logistic curve, S-shaped, and even above and below its middle. The only good historical example known to me illustrates the decline of European Middle Ages, followed by the beginning of the Renaissance. If one makes a graph the number of universities found in Europe, arranged by date, the curve splits into two parts. The first part is a sigmoid curve starting at AD 950, growing exponentially at first but falling away rapidly by about 1450, and thereafter approaching a ceiling with equal rapidity. Added to this is a second exponential curve, doubling more rapidly than the first and acting as if it had started with the first member, a new style of university in 1450. The lesson is obvious. The old order began to die on its feet, and in doing so allowed a quite new renaissance concept of the university to arise. It is a property of the symmetrical sigmoid curve that its transition from small values to saturated ones is accomplished during the central portion, halfway between flow and ceiling, in a period of time corresponding to only the middle five or six doublings, more exactly 5.8, independent of the exact size of the ceiling involved. Thus, the time at which the logistic curve has fallen only a few percent below the expected normal exponential curve represents the onset of the process. Three doubling periods later, the deficiency is 50%, the sigmoid curve reaching only half the expected height. Thereafter, the sigmoid curve becomes almost flat, while the exponential curve continues its wild increase. One must therefore say that only some three doublings intervene between the onset of the saturation and absolute decrepitude. For science in the United States, the accurate growth figures show that only about 30 years must elapse between the period when some few percent of difficulty is felt and the time when the trouble has become so acute that it cannot possibly be satisfied. It seems quite apparent from the way in which we have talked, time to time in recent years, about manpower difficulties in science, and that we are currently in a period in which the onset of manpower shortage is beginning to be felt. We are already, roughly speaking, about halfway up the manpower ceiling. The historical evidence leads one to believe that this is no incidental headache that can be cured separately by giving science an aspirin. It is just one symptom a particularly deep-rooted disease of science. Perhaps it is more a natural process than a disease, though clearly we participants in the process are ill at ease as a result. It is essential to the nature of the case that science go through a period of vigorous growth, that there has now come a sort of post-adolescent hiatus, and the growth is done, and science has its adult stature. We must now expect such growth to continue, and we must not waste much time and energy in seeking too many palliatives for an incurable process. In particular, it cannot be worthwhile sacrificing all else humanity holds dear in order to allow science to grow unchecked for only one or two more doubling periods. It would seem much more useful to employ our efforts in anticipating the requirements of the new situation in which science has become, in some way, a saturated activity of mankind, taking as high a proportion of our expenditure in brains and money as it can attain. We have not reached that stage quite yet, but it is only a very short time before we will less than a human generation. In the meantime, we must certainly do what we can to provide the aspirin of more and better scientists, but we must also face the larger issue.
What makes it particularly exciting is that the bending of the curve toward a ceiling is happening just at the time when the handicap race of the various industrial revolutions has been run out and ended in a closed finish. In previous decades, the runners have been far apart. Now they are bunched together, and their speeds no longer have much effect. To think out the consequences of this, we must now examine the feeling of living in a state of saturated science. Some of the effects are already apparent and may be amenable to historical analysis and even statistical treatment. If the cumulative expansion of science rapidly outpaces all efforts we can make to feed it with manpower, it means that more and more things will arise naturally in the life of science and require attention that cannot be given. There will be too many discoveries chasing too few workers. At the highest level, we must come to a situation at which there are too many breakthroughs per square head. In all previous times, for each breakthrough, such as that of the x-rays in 1895, there were many large groups of physicists who would attack the new problem and start to work on it. Already in our own times, we have a decrease of this. In any particular era of breakthrough, there are initially fewer capable specialists, and many of these are faced with the prospect of having too many interesting tidbits on their own plate to feel the need to go elsewhere, however exciting that might seem. It may be remarked that this specialization may also be measured, and if you do it in any reasonable way, it appears to lead to the result that it, too, is doubling in every decade or so. As the amount of knowledge increases, each man must occupy a smaller and smaller segment of the research front. This, again, is not a process that can continue indefinitely. Eventually, a point of no return is reached at which the various disadvantages of acute specialization become too marked. Cross-fertilization of fields decreases, so thereby does the utility of science. The more rapidly moving research front tends to leave behind such specialists in increasing numbers to while out their years of decline in occluded pockets. Thus far, nothing has been said about the quality of the research as opposed to its quantity. This is, of course, much more difficult to determine and would repay much more serious investigation than it has ever had. Various measures are possible. One may study the growth of only important discoveries, inventions, and scientific laws, rather than all such things, important and trivial. Any count of this sort immediately shows that the growth, though still exponential, possesses a doubling time that is much longer than that of the gross growth of science. The actual stature of the science, in terms of its achievements, appears to double within about one generation, some 30 years, rather than in the 10 years that doubles numbers, papers, and numbers of scientists. In its stature, science grows much more nearly in keeping with all else in our society, size of population, economic wealth, activity in the arts. In size, however, it must undergo something like three doublings for each of these other generations. Perhaps it is not entirely wrong to see this as a consequence of the cumulative structure of science. If it grows like a pile of stones or bricks, then the pile keeps the same pyramidal shape. Its height measures the stature of science and its attainment. In this, it grows at the same general rate as our culture at large. However, to make the pyramid twice as high, its volume must be multiplied by eight, the cube of two. It must undergo three doublings for every doubling of the height. The number of bricks of scientific knowledge increases as the cube of the reach of that knowledge. Even if this is only a most approximate law, based on rather tenuous hypothesis and measurements, it nevertheless constitutes a powerful law of diminishing returns in the world of science. This finding may be easily strengthened by an analysis of the distribution and quality of scientific men. It has been proposed on the basis of statistical investigations of the number of times that various papers were used by other people that an inverse square law of the goodness holds here as it did for productivity. For every single paper of the first order of importance, there are four of secondary quality, nine of the third class, and so on. Much of the same result is obtained if one regards the spread in the scientific population as similar to that as the upper tail of a normal distribution curve of some sort of intelligent quotient. However you do it, it seems inevitable 
that to increase the general number of scientists, you must cut off a larger section of the tail, rather than increase the thickness of the same section of tail. Probably it follows that to double the population of workers in the few highest categories, there must be added some eight times the number of less individuals. At a certain point, it becomes rather futile to worry about improving the standard of the low-grade men, since it is unlikely that one can tamper very much with a distribution curve that seems much the same now as it was in the 17th century, much the same in America as in Europe or as in Russia. Minor differences in quality of training there might be, but to work on the research front of modern science demands a high minimum of excellence. Thus, science in an age of saturation must begin to look rather different from its accustomed state. I believe it is without question that the occurrence of such a change must produce effects at least as disturbing to our way of life as an economic depression. For one thing, any slackening of the research pace of pure science must be reflected quite rapidly in our advancing technology and thereby in our economic state. It is difficult to say just what form this effect might take. Clearly, there is no direct one-to-one -one relationship of pure science to technology. Even if there were declared a sudden moratorium on pure scientific research, or what is more plausible, an embargo on growth that allows all such work to continue but without the habitual 6% yearly increase in manpower, there would still be enough of a corpus of knowledge to provide for technological applications for several generations to come. As Robert Oppenheimer has expressed it, we need new knowledge like we need a hole in the head. There is, however, a snag in the argument as expressed above. For in the past, the expansion of science and of technology have proceeded hand in hand, and it has been only the sorry task of the historian to point out examples where the one or the other has taken the leading role, an evaluation in most cases that has been revised back and forth several times each decade. I suspect, because of this intimate relationship, that although technology might be left with a great bulk of pure science waiting to be applied, any decrease in the acceleration of science will prove an unaccustomed barrier to industry, that the flow of the new ideas into industry will in some indeterminate way suffer and drop spectacularly. We are now geared to an improvement of technology at a rate of some 6-7% to 7 per annum, and the decline in this must affect all our lives. Then again, if manpower is chronically to be in short supply in the world of science, it will follow that what we do is much more important than how much we do it. It follows also that the good scientists will be increasingly in demand and in power, since it must become ever more apparent that it is the who holds the purse strings of civilization in the air we have entered. Indeed, if it were not for the well-established reluctance of scientists to enter the political arena, one might boldly predict that the philosophers are about to become kings, or presidents at least. In a saturated state of science, there will be evident need to decide, either by decree or by default, which job shall be done and which shall be left open, remembering always that an ever-increasing number of possible breakthroughs must be left unexploited. It is most doubtful whether this can be done by considering merely the utility to society of the job in itself. In the history of science, it is notorious that the practical application has often grown out of the purely scientific advance. Seldom has pure research arisen from practical application by any direct means. I would be cautious here, for there are too many violent views in such areas, and the truth is certainly no unmixed extreme. But even so, it would be foolhardy to direct all medical research to work on cancer or all physicists to work on missiles and atomic power. If such fields are rich and important at the moment, it is evident that they have not always been so, that they will probably appear in a different light a few decades hence. In this future state, we might perchance depend on fields that are accurately being starved through diversion and funds elsewhere, 
If at any time in the future we wish to change, even if the demand is great, we might have already committed our resources in such a way that they cannot be converted to the new projects. Not only is science changing more and more rapidly, it is entering a completely new state. In this new state, a civilization will rise or fall according to the tactics and strategy of our application, of our scientific efforts. It is anarchical to decide such issues by merely letting ourselves be ruled by the loudest voices. It may or may not be worthwhile to support missile research to the hilt, but no man can make such a decision without considering the possibility that this work will ruin the chances of half a dozen other fields for an entire generation. In a condition in which so much of our scientific research is supported by military contract and federal projects, it seems no man's business to consider the possible damage which could come in our new saturated state. But the supply of research cannot simply be allowed to follow the ephemeral demand. It seems also that we can no longer take the word of the scientists on the job. Their evaluation of the importance of their own research must also be unreliable, for they must support their own needs. Even in the most ideal situation, they can look only at the neighboring parts of the research front, for it is not their own business to see the whole picture. Quite apart from the fact that we have no national scientific policy, it is difficult to see any ground on which such a policy might be based. It is difficult to take advice from either the promoters of special jobs or from the scientists themselves, for their interests might well be opposed, might well be irrelevant to the needs of the nation as a whole. The trouble seems to be that it is no man's business to understand the general patterns and reactions of science as the economist understands the business world. Given some knowledge of economics, a national business policy can be formulated, decrees can be promulgated, recessions have some chance of being controlled, the electric can be educated. I do not know, indeed, whether one might in fact understand the crisis of modern science so well as to have the power to do anything about them. I must, however, suggest that the petty illnesses of science, its superabundance of literature, its manpower shortages, its increasing specialization, its tendency to deteriorate in quality, all these things are but symptoms of a general disease. That disease is partly understood by the historian, and might be understood better for any man's professional province to do so. Even if we could not control the crisis that is almost upon us, there would at least be some satisfaction in understanding what was hitting us.